This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Hanif Abdurraqib, A Little Devil in America, is just out in paperback. You are a MacArthur Genius Grant recipient. You're a finalist for the National Book Award. And now you have a Carnegie Medal from the American Library Association as well. And I am so excited to see you. Thank you so much for joining us. But I have a question. Yeah. What does joy sound like to you? Thank you for having me. It's really great to be here. And that's a great question in part because so much of my daily life is propelled by sound and not only seeking sound, but seeking to understand sound. And so I have a lot of answers that can veer towards the musical, but instead I've been thinking a lot about memory and sound and how the two are interconnected. And I've been thinking about this because as I get older and more distant from the last time I heard my mother's speaking voice, the sound of it gets kind of cloudy in my memory. You know, my mother passed away when I was 13, I'm now 38. And so we're kind of going on two and a half decades of not being present with the sound of her voice. I remember very clearly the sound of her laughter. I remember the sound of her kind of humming or singing along to things, but the so-called quotidian that that just happens in everyday conversation, I lose that sound and, and every now and then it kind of breaks through the memory fog and comes back to me really clearly. So maybe to answer your question, I think the memory of my mother's speaking voice right now is something that I think is joyful. A Little Devil in America is dedicated to Josephine Baker. And I was hoping we could start there. How did that happen? So the book's title comes from Josephine Baker's speech at the March on Washington. Her speech at the March on Washington is underappreciated, underreported on, because so much of the historical accounting of the March on Washington is centered on, on men. I mean, I think that is, a, uh, that is a fact of many historical accountings, but the March on Washington is one of them. But Josephine Baker spoke. She didn't speak long, but her speech, though it was condensed in a time sense, it was so rich with multiple emotions and histories. She was such a great performer because there was a great balance of playfulness and seriousness to her. She was playful in the performance, but the actual execution of the labor that she was doing on a stage was, in fact, very serious. And the speech held that, too. She was speaking to a crowd that was younger. This was later in Justin Baker's life. So she was speaking to a crowd that was younger and maybe did not know her from her heyday of performance. And she compels them to go and ask their parents and grandparents about her and says, and they'll, they'll tell you that I was a devil and they'll be right. I was a devil in other countries and I was a little devil in America too. I want to dedicate the book to Josephine Baker in part because there's a unique defiance I found to her living and her performing that I kind of hit at in the essay in the book about her, about leaving and not returning. What I consider the bravery in Exodus. You know, the book as it came out was not the book that I started writing. I started writing a book about appropriation and about the theft of Black artistry by white artists and all these things. And I needed to find the bravery to exit that book and find a better book. Josephine Baker is one of the many people who carried me towards that exodus. And so I really wanted to say I owed her a great debt. I'm going to paraphrase you for a second. You have a line that basically comes down to love is not consumption and consumption is not love. And I think that's really important point to make, especially when we look at the subtitle of the book, Notes in Praise of Black Performance. As someone who I think writes work, thankfully, very happily writes work that a lot of people connect to, it was a shock for me to kind of see how easily the line can be blurred from I love your work to I believe I love you to I maybe don't love everything you stand for or I don't love everything you believe in or you're not the person I imagined you to be in this world I've built based off of what I feel about your work. And so it feels really urgent for me to draw hard lines between consumption and affection. I don't just mean for the outside world. I also mean for myself, for myself as someone who consumes a, a great amount of pop culture and feels connected to a great amount of pop culture. 
it's important for me to draw that line between consumption and affection. And it gets even trickier, I think, when drawing the line between what that consumption can make you feel versus what you feel for the person who created the piece of art. I'm always thinking about those boundaries as uh, people who create things now in this moment can feel more touchable than ever. There is, to me, an underpinning of ownership that goes with consumption in a way that is very uncomfortable, whether it's owning the physical object that is the piece of art, whether it's a book or a painting or a photograph or even a pair of sneakers, whatever yeah. that thing may be. And I think, too, social media has made it possible for us to enter people's lives in a way that we could not previously. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. that we feel like we know people <laughs> that we don't, in fact. And one of the things I really love about the piece that you do on Josephine Baker in this book is the way you talk about place. Columbus is your big beating heart. It's where you grew up. You still live there. Josephine Baker had to leave the United States and go to Paris to find her space where she could really just take up space, whether that was on stage or just in her day-to-day -day life with her family in Paris. And the way you talk about place with its multiple layers I think is really important. Can we go back to that for a minute? Yeah. Place is vital to me because um, I believe a relationship, a healthy relationship with place, I can only speak for America. So I will say in, in America, particularly for folks at any margins, that's a privilege. The fact that I still, through a very complicated relationship with Columbus, that becomes increasingly complicated as I age, I think, I still have enough affection for it to stay. I believe that to be somewhat of a privilege. I'm not here. I'm not anywhere out of a sense of idle love. Now, I think I maybe believed that when I was younger, that me just being here and taking from the city by my being here, well, that was enough affection. That was an act of love. But laboring in any place and being of a community within a place, that feels more like an active sense of love. But like anything else, I've come to very real terms of the fact that that reality might change for me. I used to always be like, well, I'll never leave Columbus. I'll never leave. I'll be here forever. But that seems like a foolish guarantee to make. Understanding that place is a privilege and one's relationship with place, a healthy relationship with place is also a privilege. It feels like a foolish guarantee, a fool's errand to say that relationship will feel healthy enough to stay forever. I look to Josephine Baker, but also there's other parts of this book that I think are deeply rooted in mm -hmm. an understanding of place and an understanding of the way that you view a place that the mirror does not always reflect evenly. Can we have an example? One thing I found on this book while working on this book that was perhaps not surprising, but was a little shocking nonetheless, were the amount of vaudeville performers, Black performers. I talk about it in the book with Burt Williams and Black Hermit, but there were more who suffered some physical crisis on stage, be it literally dying or having heart attacks, these kind of things that would cause them to collapse in front of white audiences who believed that to be a part of the act. And so these performers would be dead or in distress on stage and not receive any care because the audience could not understand that what was happening was not for their entertainment. And so that is a perfect example of perhaps an uneven relationship with place and performance. That's the starkest one, I think. There are lighter ones, but that is the one, I mean, if we're going to cut to just a very real example of how the mirror does not always reflect evenly. That is maybe the sharpest of them. And that was something that, you know, when working on this book, that wasn't surprising to me. But the fact that there was even more than one instance of it, you know, when I found a single instance, I thought, okay, that's maybe not that surprising. 
But when I found multiple, that's when I was kind of like, oh, this is hitting at something that interests me, perhaps. But it's also a lost history. I mean, these aren't stories that get recorded, and it makes it even more important and more urgent, I think, in many ways, to make sure that we're not losing these stories. It also gives context to something that Ben Vereen chose to do at Ronald Reagan's inauguration, which involved a blackface performance. And the second half of the performance was cut off by ABC television during the broadcast. So the viewers at home only saw a certain piece of the performance, which I'm sure left them with a very specific kind of memory. And Vereen's artistic choice was actually not respected and cut in half. And I'm sure that wasn't his plan. But part of me also thinks, why would you trust a situation like this to be the right place for the artistic moment that you want to project? I tried not to go too critical of Ben Vereen in the book, although I think I mentioned that's not the journey I would have gone on. Although some people said I was too critical of him in the book. But I think the question that I pose in the book is fair. And the question I pose in the book, in order for this kind of subversion to work, your audience has to have self-awareness and they have to have a conscience. They got to have both of those things. It can't be one or the other. He trusted that audience too much. Yes, CBS did him wrong, right? CBS did him wrong by cutting off half that performance. But the starting point of that performance was flawed because it relied on the trust of an audience that just wasn't going to get there with him. And this is the great flaw still now that tries to subvert. Because who are you performing towards? Who is that performance facing? The people who understand it probably don't need to see it. And the people who need to see it aren't going to understand it. They're not going to understand themselves being reflected in it. And so it leaves you in this kind of middle ground where the message becomes very cloudy, I think. Yes, undoubtedly, CBS did not honor Ben Vereen's wishes for that performance. But the full performance might not have even mattered to the broader audience he was not only performing in front of, but the stage he was performing that on broadly, the presidential inauguration, right? And this was for a President Reagan, who was a performer himself, but performing again to a very specific audience with a very specific set of understandings. It's like that other thing I talk about in the book with three billboards in Ebbing, Missouri, the torturing scene, where that like who's on first-ish kind of bit plays out and the white audience laughs. But if you were to ask them point blank, well, what's the joke? Explain the joke to me. I don't know if anyone could do it effectively. And so there's a way that these kind of performances propel people to feel something because the bit itself overrules and overruns the logic behind the comedy. In the case of Three Billboards, these are multiple examples of of ways that I think performances beg questions that cannot be answered by the people consuming them. And I think, too, you make a couple of really important points throughout the book, that there is no monolithic Black culture, that there is room for levels of conversation, but there are also levels of performance. You know, criticism seems to be in a place right now where much of it is simple summaries of whatever the art is. So my way of thinking criticism should be providing context in a social moment for what that piece of art is. And so really, who are we asking to provide the criticism, the critique, the context, and who are we not? You know, a funny thing that I always think about, I don't really read reviews of things, although I'm thankful for people who have spent time reviewing any book of mine, particularly this one, folks were, I understand them. I understood that folks were very generous. You know, I don't read them, but I get the feel of them from public, you know, my the Random House and all that. So I, gratitude for that. But I remember when Go Ahead in the Rain, my book on a tribe called Quest came out and there were a handful of reviews that were done by white readers who spent the whole first half of the review being like, I don't really know anything about a tribe called Quest. I don't know much about hip hop. I'm really sorry. It was so bizarre for me to understand how this happened, right? Like how anyone assigned this review to these people, how 
these people who were doing the reviewing felt like they needed to say something. And no one asked the question of, would it be better if someone else said something here? Would this book and the people who might be excited about it be better served by someone else saying something? And I think that's a problem that persists today. I still see reviews, not for my work, but for other people's work, where people spend time apologizing for what they don't know instead of removing themselves from the position of expert and eagerly pursuing that which they don't know through the lens of someone else who can do it better. That is where I draw my line. I'm so eager to be a non-expert. And for me, removing myself from the position of expert allows me to be eager in my pursuits of what I don't know. It allows me to be curious, not so that I can become an expert, but so that I can expand whatever my excitements are. To me, that's a work of criticism too. A work of criticism is, is not just what one can produce for the public. It is what one can pursue for themselves. That's vital for me. So much of a little devil in America, I don't really think I'm presenting myself as an expert. I'm mostly just saying, can you believe this amazing thing happened? For me, that felt like enough. There's an excellent chapter on magic. Yeah. Which I had no idea who Ellen was before I met her in your book. Can we talk about her for a second? I would love to. You know, it's funny because I'll try to limit myself because I have a lot to say about Alan Armstrong. But, you know, I hear now from magicians and folks in like the magician community. For one, I want to tread carefully here because I don't want to take credit for too much. But like Alan Armstrong, when I first sought out Alan Armstrong, had no Wikipedia page, had no, just like not a lot of history. You know, now there's more history popping up. I've talked to folks in the magic community where they're like, you know, we read this chapter and now we're trying to unearth more and more and more of Ellen Armstrong. This book was propelled by something that I began to call the Ellen Armstrong dilemma. The undertold story and undertold histories of Black folks who did something singularly spectacular. And it's interesting because this came to me, there was a point around, I think, 2017 where... The phrase Black Girl Magic, it was probably, I mean, before 2017, but around 2016, 2017, the phrase Black Girl Magic had begun to get co-opted in all these kind of, these ways that served capital. You know, you just find Black Girl Magic shirts in like Target. And in response to that, I think a lot of Black women wrote some really smart essays around the dangers of that co-opting. And, you know, not that I had any doubt at the time, but we saw the results of those essays coming true repeatedly in recent years. The thesis of so many of those essays is like, if you keep doing this, if you keep co-opting this phrase, it is going to present a world where Black women are treated as superhuman, but like also subhuman simultaneously. It's going to further that, right? It's going to further that impulse. And I think we see that coming to life still, always. But in reading those essays, and I read a lot of them because they were all very compelling and all very thoughtful. And just there was a part of the back of my brain that was like, if I were to take this, the phrase Black girl magic as literally as possible, undoubtedly there is a Black woman who was the first Black woman to do magic in America. And I kind of just went down this deep, intense rabbit hole searching for the first Black woman who headlined her own magic show in the States. I found John Hartford Armstrong, who was Ellen Armstrong's father. And through him, I found Ellen Armstrong. Very little about her, but I, I kept up this kind of pursuit. I would cold call, and in gratitude to them, because this has to be strange, but I cold called a bunch of magic historians, just wherever I could find them. You know, I found one in Syracuse, and I called them. And then they're like, well, I don't know anything, but my buddy in Dallas might know something. I called them. And like, I don't know much. My friend up in Seattle might know something. And I called that person. And I got these little bits, but not enough. And I kept kind of hammering away. And it's interesting because... Ellen Armstrong is only briefly in the book, to be clear. 
you know, maybe a couple paragraphs, but she's the centerpiece of this book in so many ways. The pursuit of that knowledge, of that curiosity that propelled me towards opening up an essay into something I didn't believe it could be. I took that energy I had with Ellen Armstrong and relocated it all through the book. It is really good. I think it's really great to see her story begin to get a little more traction and people looking into it a little bit more. To be clear, I do believe my role in that was very small, but I do hope that there are folks who take a larger, wider approach to it. Ellen Armstrong's story isn't the only thread that runs through Little Devil in America. Community is part of every piece of this book, each individual essay. What does community feel like to you? What are you trying to capture about community when you're working on one of these essays? Because your pieces, they are more than just the person you're writing about or just the idea that you're pulling from. You talked about invisibility. You've talked about code switching. You've talked about masks. There's a lot happening, but community is the thing that seems to me that drives your poetry, your criticism, all of your music work. Well, I mean, I think for me, community is a a place where I feel held accountable to be my most kind of flourishing, fluorescent, and touchable self, independent of whatever it is I create or don't create, the place I go to be loved regardless of what I produce. And the understanding I have of that actually makes the work of production a lot cleaner to know that I have places that are not beholden to what I make and people who are not beholden to what I make, but instead are very invested in what excites me. That makes me believe that the things that I'm excited about are not small, which is a reminder I always need to put upon myself because I do go down these rabbit holes of things that can seem almost insignificant or seem maybe hyper granular. But knowing that I have people who share these sometimes hyper granular excitements in their own lives and we can share them amongst each other as an exchange, that is, you know, community propels me towards the work in that way. But it is not centered on the work at all, if that makes sense. Is community the place that you don't have to perform? Maybe, though. I think that I, I can't I can't use the broad B, but I think I'm always performing to some degree. And I also think a big part of the project of this book was removing shame from that reality. The word performative and idea of performativity is a bit of a pejorative, maybe, but I just think when I am honest with myself, I'm always performing something unless I am, like, even when I'm alone in my house with my dog, there are moments where I am performing something. Again, only speaking for America, but I do think this is maybe a global phenomenon. But I think in America, there's an obsession with this idea of authenticity and proof. But who sets the terms of what authenticity is? And who demands proper proof of what what is real and what is not real? And sometimes a performance is a performance away from that idea of an authenticity that does not have you in mind, right? And so when I think about these kind of things, it helped me remove some shame from the idea of, of what a performance is and what a performance isn't. A performance isn't always like a perfectly styled selfie and a long fluorescent caption or what have you. I think about it in a smaller way. There's, it's, like, it's good to think about it in smaller ways than that. Whitney Houston, Can't Dance. Yeah, yeah. The Soul Train Awards. Yeah. That was not something I ever expected to read, but then I go back and I think about it and I'm like, well, I'm not sure I ever did see her dance, but I can't dance, so I'm certainly not going to judge. Yeah. Oh, and that definitely is a point. I mean, I also, I have rhythm, but I don't enjoy dancing. Mm -hmm. For me, the best dancers don't need to be able to dance. They just need to enjoy it. Have some rhythm, perhaps, but mostly have 
And I'm not talking about like professional dance, to be clear. Those people need to dance, be able to dance. But I'm talking about the kind of dance that's like on a dance floor at a wedding or what have you. The best dancers are the people who just really love doing it, who love moving their body. I'm one of those people who has the rhythm and ability, but I don't enjoy the work of it. And so therefore I consider myself a bad dancer. You know, I look at that Grammy performance that piece begins with and centers on. Whitney Houston did not appear to love moving her body. She seemed uncomfortable until the very end of that performance, which I think is is really the most beautiful part of that performance. But also the dancing in that piece becomes a thread for a greater idea uh, and conversation about that concept of authenticity and how even though I, I, there are boundaries and parameters set around authenticity, I believe them to be there for a reason. They're there to keep people out sometimes, or they're there to exile the people who are not living up to whatever standard of authenticity is set. And Whitney Houston is interesting because of how the affection for her evolved, particularly among Black folks. And I, I love Whitney Houston a great deal and, and always did. She was one of my first favorite pop stars. And so I, I loved her through all of the eras that were presented to me. And when I look back now, it's kind of fascinating to watch that line, the arc of her career and her relationship to an audience, particularly a Black audience. And how she learned to respond to that audience, too, because that changed with time as well. It wasn't just her performance on stage. It was how she was responding right. to the people who were watching her. Right. I mean, and some of this is a tale as old as time when it comes to how Black musicians are marketed by the heads of labels who are not Black. People who have such a limited imagination for what Black people are capable of consuming and excited about that they want to mold an artist into something that they deem to be a quote-unquote crossover. And so some of this too is that Whitney Houston was a young artist who was marketed and molded by people with, I think, limited imagination for what Black people were interested in. As Whitney evolved and grew as an artist, I think we were really treated to the expansiveness of not only her musical life, but her whole life. Now, that wasn't, of course, always a treat, and it was sometimes troubling, but I, I do think that we did get to see it all, which she certainly did not owe us, and she certainly did not owe anyone that, but but that is how it unfolded, yeah. I know you've mentioned that Ellen Armstrong was the story that you fell in love with, but do you have a, a sort of runner-up favorite story to Ellen? I mean, I love them all. You know, I love, I really love diving back into the music of Don Shirley. Mm -hmm. The Soul Train piece means a great deal to me because I was highly unaware of the Great Depression dance marathons. I didn't know anything about them. There are parts of this book where things I didn't know were brought to light by people I know and love or people who just knew, you know, the, the dance marathons. A friend of mine who's an artist reached out to me and was kind of like, but at the time, the book was kind of a little bit more about dance and movement. He's like, I know you're working on a book about dance. I just finished this exhibit on these Great Depression era dance marathons. And it, it's how I was like, you know, it seems like, you know, mostly white folks participated. I don't know if that's like something I could write about in the context of this book. And he was like, no, let me send you what I got. And he sent me this file folder of images and videos. And I was just so captivated by the history of these dance marathons. That was also the way I got to fold that into a soul train story that kind of propelled me through the rest of the book was really thrilling. And yeah, I mean, this book is just filled, I think, with either revisitations that were delightful or unearthings of histories that were new to me. And that was really great. The research on this book for the first time was very visual and sonic instead of text-based. So much research for my other work has been so text-based. And it was great to kind of have a book where so much of what I uncovered was rooted in the visual and rooted in the sonic and letting myself kind of be carried away on the on the wings of that. Is the... um. 
Dance Marathon Soul Train essay, is that the first piece you wrote for this book or did you start somewhere else? No, I mean, the book began differently. And so the first piece I wrote for the book isn't even in the book anymore. (laughs) The the Dance Marathon, the Soul Train essay and the Whitney Houston essay used to be the same piece. Mm -hmm. And the bit about the Dance Marathons wasn't even in it. And then when I decided to reframe the book, I broke them apart and then kind of tore them down to their base elements and asked myself how I can build around them and build around them well so that they held up as pieces that gave their central character, so to speak, the lives they deserved. So that's kind of how those two came about. But I, you know, the early pieces I wrote for the book, most of them aren't there anymore. I'm thankful for them though, because every time I sat down to write something for this book, I learned something new about myself and about the project. The project would not have become what it became without those. What are some of the things that you might be willing to share here? Things you learned about yourself? I wanted to write a book. I didn't realize this until I got into version 2.0 of what I thought this project could be, but I wanted to write a book that felt evangelical and kind of against the impulse of argument. I didn't write it, want to write a book of essays that proposed arguments entirely because I thought it'd be a better book if I began from a standpoint of someone who was a grateful witness to the miracle, the miracles that took place. And then just, I, I was someone who could share the information of those miracles. It felt to me that at some point, the essays had already been written. I watched hours of Soul Train. I mean, hundreds of hours of Soul Train, Soul Train Minds, Soul Train Performances. And when I got to the end of that, I decided the essay's already been written. The work's already been done by all these brilliant, beautiful people. And so I just need to go tell the good word of what I've already witnessed. That made the book so much easier for me. The book then didn't become about proving anything. It became about telling the good word of the existing proof. I learned that through the process of writing and discarding and then watching and taking in and finding language for the pleasure that I got through that watching. So is that your basic editorial process where you sit down, you create the initial piece, you think about it for a bit, you go back, you take it apart, you put it back together again. Where does your editor fit into that? And especially it's a very different process for poetry and prose. So can we sort of look at both of those for a minute? Well, this book was different. You know, I worked with the great Maya Millet who I sought her out and hired her specifically to edit this book. That was the best experience. It's the best relationship I've ever had with an editor because we really dug into this book and took it apart and then put it back together. And she really held me kind of to a standard of making the pieces work. That was the first prose editing experience, not to knock the work that went into my other books, of course, but that was the first prose editing experience that I felt like really was more than just like, slightly heavier copy editing. We really deconstructed and reconstructed a book that would not have been in the shape it was going to be in, if not for Maya. Poetry is a little different. I mean, poetry, I, I, I'm i a little bit more guarded. I self-edit a bit more. I go through a much more rigorous process of self-editing, usually motivated by sound and shape of the poem. And I just know with poems, I have kind of an inherent knowing of what I want and, and what I'm excited about and what's going to bring me pleasure. And so I, I pursue that a bit. There's this really wonderful piece called Nine Considerations of Black People in Space yeah. in this book. And you connect Patti LaBelle, Landell Calrissian, the photo of Trayvon Martin at yeah. Space Camp that we've all seen, the Columbia Space Shuttle explosion, Octavia Butler, and Sun Ra. Yeah. How does a piece like that evolve? Well, it began with Sun Ra. I wanted to write a piece about Sun Ra. And I kind of reverse engineered it because I realized that it didn't have to be just about Sun Ra. And there was a vastness to it. And so I was interested in not only this idea about space as this vast frontier 
in which Black people could flourish, but I was interested in all the way that the aesthetics of space have impacted Black people on Earth and the imaginations of Black people on Earth and the expansion of the limited imagination that gets put upon Black people here on Earth. But I, I began with Sun Ra because it felt appropriate to begin with Sun Ra. And then I kind of worked backwards from there. I was fascinated by the LaBelle spacesuits. I was, I was fascinated by the history of the moonwalk. There was an opportunity, I thought, to be playful by talking about Chewbacca and perhaps <laughs> like Billy D. Williams. And I wanted to include all those things because I wanted the piece to be as expansive as space itself. And um, if I'm going to be writing a piece about the future, I believe in a future that holds all of that, holds a multitude of ideas. And so I was excited to write a piece that held multiple ideas at once. Are you still thinking about invisibility every day? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, it's, it's become almost easier to think about now. I think I pretty much finished Little Devil in America before the pandemic, or it was like wrapped up early in the pandemic. But now, God, I mean, it's so much easier for me to think about invisibility after a couple of years because I don't leave my house much and I live alone. I live alone with my dog. And I feel like I am sinking into a kind of invisibility even from myself, which isn't horrific to me. It has allowed me to kind of reframe my presence and place in the world. It's funny, my dog, like I think most dogs, does not have object permanence. And so in the mornings, she'll run into the room and jump on the bed to wake me up. And if I'm not ready to get out of bed, all I have to do is throw the blanket over my head. And she'll kind of stare at that space very confused for a minute and then just like run off and like look for me elsewhere. To her, almost everything is magic or everything has the potential to be magic. That sense of wonder where it's like someone can be there and then they can vanish is a type of magic to her. It's like a game for her when I throw the blanket over my head. It's like, okay, he's not here anymore. I got to go find him. Allowing me to be open to the idea of invisibility and to think of invisibility not only as a nefarious action allows me to be open to a sense of wonder within a world that I, I think uh, has uh, embraced invisibility in some heartbreaking ways, but in ways that are not wholly heartbreaking. Definitely some heartbreaking ways, though, because there are places I love that just did not make it this far into the pandemic, right? But there are parks in Columbus that have been able to flourish in new and different ways because people just haven't been in them as much. Like the spaces have been able to be used in newer and beautiful ways. So people have actually planted things and people have grown things. And there's a beauty to that, that a more tragic invisibility has afforded uh, some beauty to arise. As a society, I'm sort of fascinated by our responses in this moment. We haven't had performance outside of screens. Yeah. Everything's on a screen. And I think that sets us at a remove that you do lose some of that energy when you're yeah. in a packed room, whether it's a reading or it's a show or that sort of shared communal experience is missing. This is maybe pessimistic, although I, I do think critics would say that I'm too cynical and you know, that's kind of something that's dogged me for my whole writing career and also life outside of writing. So this won't help in that regard. But I also think that Remove has fostered a real level of cruelty, like individualistic cruelty. So many people feel justifiably helpless against systemic neglect and apathy and injustice that they just don't have access to. And there are people who are really holding a lot of rage towards systems that they cannot materially impact. And so that rage turns towards, turns towards individuals. And because we're at this remove, that rage seems almost without consequence. Now, I'm not saying I do this, but as an example, if I were to just log on to 
Twitter and find someone who maybe said something slightly off, but not too egregious. If I unloaded a rage upon them and then closed my internet tab and moved on with my life, it's very of a very little consequence to me. And I think that that is maybe where we're floundering a bit. I think we've really opened up the doors of some cruelty that cannot be closed. And so I think interpersonally, society is more cruel and more neglectful towards individuals than it was before. And I don't think it's going to improve. My hope is that it won't get worse, but I don't see a world where it doesn't. I think I do my best. I know that there are people doing their best to be aware of how we all treat each other. And I think that's just the best that can happen. You have a line towards the end of the book where you write, excellence too is showing up when it's easier for you to not be present, especially when no one would notice you being gone. Mm -hmm. Where did that come from? (laughs) The best example I can give is my last nine to five job where it became clear to me that it actually did not matter. The last time I worked that job was early 2017, but it was so clear to me that it actually didn't matter if I was physically present or even mentally present. It maybe mattered to the company's marketing team because there weren't many Black people there. In terms of actual work done, it didn't matter if I was present or not. That didn't make me want to work harder. I grew up playing sports. There's a way that you can sometimes be underestimated in sport where people say, oh, he's too short. Or like, look at his, look out, you know, whatever. That is propulsive for me where it's like, I'm going to prove you wrong. But sometimes when you kind of shrink and vanish to the point of being almost inconsequential in the eyes of whomever, then all that's left is just exiting and finding a way somewhere else. If you can, of course, even the ability to exit is a privilege. I remember when I last I left my last job, I didn't have much going for me at all. It was just kind of like, I just know I can't be here. Like I saved up enough money to act on the reality that I cannot be here. And that's it. Oh, sounds like that was enough, though. We've yeah, seen yeah. a lot of work from you since. Then. Yeah, it worked out. All right. I'm thankful. Thankful. It worked out okay. What's next for you? I mean, you're podcasting, you're writing criticism, you had a new poetry collection in 19. What's next? Yeah. I definitely probably not another poetry collection. I really think a fortunate year disaster is probably it for me in terms of a poetry book. I still write poems. I still love poems. But in terms of a poetry book, you know, fortune for your disaster, I feel like I've maybe, I don't know if I can ever do anything that I would be as proud of in the poetry world as that. But I'm working on a book right now about basketball in Ohio and films. I'm doing Objective Sound, which is a music podcast. I'm very excited about that. So this is also a funny thing because I've never had a book come out in hardcover, I guess is the thing. And so I've never had a book then later come out in paperback. And so it's interesting to me to get to live this kind of second life of a little devil in America because every other book I've had has only been out in paperback and then it's, you know, it's out. And then a little devil in America, it's so wild that like it's been out for a year. And I say this with gratitude to booksellers and readers. The hardcover has had a long life, like that has been extended by the generosity of readers and booksellers and folks who care a great deal about the book. And so the hardcover was already kind of having an expansive life. That in some ways is a real blessing because I get to kind of ramp straight up into the paperback world and life of this book with no break. It's not like I took a break and it's like, all right, I got to get back into it. And so that's really, I'm kind of basking in that a little bit. I've been fortunate in that like a lot of my books have had a long life. I think particularly They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us, which came out in 2017 and still resonates with folks, which is wow. That book is going to be five years old and like six months, you know, and to see it still having a bit of a life is just delightfully bizarre to me. Every time someone tags me and like, they're still reading, it's like, you're still reading that. And it's not out of like shame. It's just like out of awe, like y'all still reading that. But, you know, working on those two things, you know, I have the music series that I curated at Brooklyn Academy of Music. 
And yeah, you know, I'm mostly just trying to stay afloat. You know, I just took up the carpet in my house because a big part of me during the pandemic has been like, I'm going to make my house my own. But like, I'm not really equipped to do these projects. And so kind of foolishly, I was like, I'll take up a carpet in my house and underneath it will be hardwood floors. And that's just how, well, that's how it goes. But I didn't think about like, you got to refinish hardwood floors. You got to like, you know, yeah, I took up carpet in this hardwood floor, but there's also nails everywhere and staples everywhere. You know? And so every time I tell myself, I'm going to do just like a little thing in my house, it becomes a massive project. And that's kind of funny because I'm just not equipped to do these things, but I run towards them anyway. And that's kind of, uh, that is a microcosm of uh, perhaps my entire creative process. You know, there are a great many ways that I'm not really equipped to be the writer that I am, I guess, but I've enjoyed running towards that anyway. And we are so lucky. We are so, so lucky for that. Hanif Abdurraqib, MacArthur Genius Grant winner, Carnegie Mellon recipient, finalist for the National Book Award, and really one of the smartest guys out there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is a real pleasure and appreciate the work y'all do. Thank you. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.